It's five o'clock in the morning. Where are you? Still sleeping? No? <laughs> five o'clock in the morning. Where are you? Five o'clock. He wakes up, has breakfast, says his prayers, and he's out the door. By 6 a.m., he meets the crew, usually around eight people or so, and they take off. 8 a.m., they arrive at their location. <clears throat> And by law, they have to leave and put two nautical miles between them and shore. By 10 a.m., they locate their cages with their GPS coordinates, and they begin to collect and pack their fish. 12 a.m. or 12 p.m., short lunch break. Uh, they need to find the locations of the new boxes. And by 1 p.m., they continue to check the cages throughout the day. They can have up to 10, loca 10 cages in each location, depending on what you want to catch. <clears throat> All the afternoon, they check cages, return to shore by 9 p.m., transport the fish to the marketplace, organize, set up the fish in a stall with ice, clean equipment in the boats. 1 a.m., they go back home to sleep. At 5 a.m., it's time to wake up again. Who is this? A fisherman. Really simple, right? Fisherman's Day starts at 5. Fisherman's Day revolves around fish. Relatively easy. Can you guess this one? You ready? 6.30 a.m., alarm clock goes off, and breakfast begins. Eggs, waffles, uh, that's their breakfast. Cottage cheese, peanut butter on toast, and orange juice. Kids go off to school, and then the next Four hours are spent squatting, jumping, bounding, and skipping. Can you guess? Don't know yet? Okay. Lunch. Lunch consists of three sandwiches or wraps, usually a Subway shop, uh, like Subway. And, uh, uh, and at 1 p.m., now back to work. Works from 1 to 5. 5 p.m., gets in home. Time to get the kids to have dinner and a bath, 7.30, it's back to the track. Anybody? Can you guess who this is? Nice car driver? <laughs> no, not even close. Uh, the skeleton tracks are between 1,100 meters and 1,500 meters, and generally takes under one minute to race. From 7 to 10 p.m., he tries to get in as many tracks as possible, usually at 120K an hour down the track. It's an Olympic athlete, a skeleton racer. You know what a skeleton racer is? Race on their back. Head oh, head first, that's right. What's the one in the back? Luge, yeah. Skeleton, that's right. You're cra crazier than that. <laughs> okay, how about this one? Can you guess who this is? It's 6 a.m., and you are already at the central market looking for and checking for Quality fruits, vegetables, and seafood, if that's your thing. Can you guess who this is? Oh, a chef. That's right. By 9.30, they arrive at the restaurant. <clears throat> make sure that all the deliveries have come in. 10.15, they start making desserts or soups or sauces, which require a long time. 10.30, the sous chefs arrive, and you tell everyone the specials of the day. 11.30, the restaurant opens for lunch. <clears throat> and the chef's job is with a critical eye, make sure that every dish is served up to par. That's an everyday chef 
uh, an everyday uh, executive chef. What about you? What does your everyday look like? 5 a.m., 6 a.m., 6.30? Are you up at the crack of dawn? Do you get to sleep in a little? Do you have kids? Do they dominate your morning? What does your everyday look like? What do you do every day? I often meet people who say to me, oh, so you're a pastor, huh? I said, yes, that's cool. So what do you do during the week? And I go, oh, nothing. <laughs> you know, nothing. They go, because that's like, that's like a church. You're, yes, yes. So do you have like a job? Do you have like a real job? And I said, no, not really. I just, yeah. What do you do every day? What is your everyday filled with? And uh, in a few weeks, I'll be, uh, um, I volunteered last year, and I'm going to go back again for career day at the school, at the academy, and they bring in people from different professions. And one of the questions that they ask you is, what, is an, what does an average day look like to you? What about you? Wherever you are, whatever station of life is, whatever job profession you have, what does an average day look like to you? Does it start really early and end really late? Is it part-time? Do you get to wear different hats? Do you have to put on a fancy little outfit each and every day when you head out the door? Maybe it's, uh, you know, uh, I don't know. Maybe you have to wear a hat to work for some reason. You're a driver. I don't know. Do you have to put on some sort of uniform to get to work? Is your everyday filled with certain routines that define who you are? And does what you do every day really tell me everything I need to know about you? What do you do every day? We have been talking about an everyday Christian, and today is week three of our four-week series uh, where we are discussing and trying to challenge ourselves and trying to uncover what it means, what it could possibly mean to be an everyday Christian. Last week we talked about in detail about what the word Christian means and defined as a word, it means a Christ follower, a follower of the Christos, a Cristiano. It means that a Christian is a person who has made a decision to follow the example set by the Christ, the Messiah. Bible tells us that that person was Jesus. That's why we call him Jesus. Jesus Christ. That's right, Jesus Christ. A Greek word for the Messiah. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the chosen one, the one sent from God. And a Christian, therefore, becomes someone who decides to follow the example of this person. But the question we have before us today is, what and how would we do that in an everyday sense? What does a Christian do every day? A skeleton, an Olympic skeleton athlete does this every day. Has that breakfast and then just jumping, squatting, sprinting every morning. That's how they get those. Have you seen them? You got these massive old, kind of like mine, big old massive legs like that, that allow them to just, it wasn't that funny, you didn't have to laugh. Um, um, th- yeah, they allow them to get this power, you know, by jumping, squatting, those kinds of, those are muscle, muscle, uh, fast twitch muscle. If he was a long distance runner, he wouldn't be doing any squatting and sprinting. He'd be, you know, putting miles in, as they say, because it defines them. That's what they do every day. What about an everyday Christian. What does an everyday Christian do in their everyday life? 
I want you to take a look with me uh, at first as uh, the first group that were ever called Christians. So if you would please open your Bibles to the book of Acts. We're going to be looking at um, a segment that we've talked about here in church before, but we're just going to look at it with slightly different eyes. If you didn't bring a Bible, if you're visiting with us today, there's probably one in the pew right in front of you. Um, there might be a hymnal and then a Bible. Would you please open it to the book of Acts? So if you get into the book of Acts, <clears throat> we're about uh, almost three quarters of the way through the book. Uh, I don't have the page. Does anybody have the, the Pew Bible page? Uh, in the New Testament, uh, the first, first five books are Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts is the fifth book. Um, and we are looking at uh, chapter two. The book of Acts it's kind of like a, a photo album or a yearbook, if you know what that is, if you go to school or college. Uh, can you tell me what that page is? 1086. Thank you. Page 1086 if you're looking at the Pew Bible, okay? The Book of Acts is, is, is a photo album of, that records the history of what has come to be known as the Christian church in its early, early stages. So the Bible tells us in the New Testament that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are a record of what Jesus did while he was here. But at the end of the Gospels, essentially, Jesus leaves. The Bible tells us that he spent time with his disciples and then that he ascended up to heaven. He left the earth. And when he left the earth, he left specific instructions for his disciples, the group of people that had followed him, the first group of Christianos that had followed him. He left specific instructions recorded in Matthew 28 where he said, Now, I'm leaving, but I'm leaving authority with you to go into all the world, all nations, and, and teach them everything that I have taught you and make disciples out of them and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what's come to be known as the Great Commission, uh, marching orders for those who would call themselves followers of Christ. And so these guys, this group of men, along with others who were, uh, had been listening to Jesus and decided to subscribe to this way of life, uh, came together. And the book of Acts tells us essentially what they did and, and how things went about. And uh, what we know from the book of Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2 is that these disciples began to meet together and began to pray together, and then they waited. Uh, at the very beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus tells them, I'm leaving, but I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will tell you what to do. So this is where we pick up the story, okay? We are in Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, uh, we're going to read a little bit of backdrop here. <clears throat> This is uh, verse 1. I'm going to just read it kind of fast, so follow along with me. So now we're probably in 1080, 1079? Right, chapter 2, verse 1. Are we okay there? 1086. Okay, sorry, 1086. Okay? If you're a pew Bible. <laughs> all right, here we go. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1. It says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. This is the, the 12 men or so, well, 11 uh, men or so, uh, plus any who had subscribed to this Christ person who said, well, we want to know what, it, what this is about. Suddenly, verse 2, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire separated, uh, that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the capital H, capital S, Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. The Bible tells us that essentially as this group of people said, we have been given marching orders by Jesus himself before he left 
but we're not sure how we're going to live this out. The Bible tells us they were meeting together and the Holy Spirit came and filled them. And then they began to live out what it means to be a Christian. We read there in the book of Acts chapter 2 that they began to go out out of the building and began to talk to people they had never met before about Jesus. This was happening right there in chapter 2. And, and, and they began to evangelize uh, is, is the word that we would modernly use. It essentially means they began to tell others about Jesus. And the Bible tells us that when this all commotion kind of died down, it begins to describe their life, their everyday life. So take a look now, chapter 2, verse 42. So scan a little bit ways down, verse 42. Okay? Are you with me? Not going too fast? Okay, fine. <clears throat> chapter 2, verse 42. And it says this. That they, this group of people, who would later be called Christians, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe, wonders, and miraculous signs. Believers were together. They sold their possessions. They gave to anyone who needed. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and joined the favor. And God added to their number daily. I don't know if you caught that there, but there was a word every day. Did you see that? Every day. So what we have in this tiny little passage is a description of what the first Christians did every day. We're going to break that down for just a second, okay? This is what the Bible says they did. Number one, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What do you think that means? What, what does it mean to devote oneself to something? Okay, it's a quiet crowd. I get it. No problem. You're thinking it. You just don't want to say it. I, I get it. To devote yourself to something. The word devotion uh, we don't normally use, it, it's, it's kind of an old-fashioned word, uh, the word devotion. And it essentially means when you give full interest and attention to something. It's like placing all your interest, all your um, concern, all of your attention on something. Uh, like this skeleton Olympic athlete, he is devoted to his sport. That's what makes him eat all those sandwiches and do all that squatting. It's one thing to say, you know, I'd like to be a skeleton athlete, right? So let me just show up on the track and see how fast I can make it down. <laughs> it's another thing to be devoted to the sport. Now, you know by now, because you've watched enough NBC pieces, there is no one that can become an Olympic athlete unless they devote themselves to that particular sport. In fact, uh, most Olympic athletes become devoted to their sport at a very early age. They have to give up interest and attention to I mean, almost every other sport and simply focus all of their life, time, and every day on that particular sport. If it's skeleton racing, if it's swimming, if it's running, whatever it is, to become a world-class athlete, they have to be completely devoted to one particular thing. In a similar way, uh, for you to be very good at your craft, whatever your profession is, whether you're a fisherman, a chef, whether you are, you know, a doctor, whatever, whatever your particular calling in life is, in order to be very good at that, you have to devote at least the majority of your everyday life to it, to the practice of it, to developing of your skills. Devoting means setting your heart, your attention, and your, your interest into something. The Bible says here that the, the first Christians... The first believers, 
devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What that tells us is that essentially what was important about them and how they organized their everyday is that they spent time learning what the apostles wanted to teach them. So one of the common markers of a Christian, as we talked about last week, is that they were learning about the Christ. Now we have this fancy little book here. They did not. They learned about the Christ from first-hand explanations from those that had been with the Christ. The apostles were people that had spent time with Jesus, just three and a half years or three years, but they had been with him, heard him personally, and had witnessed. So these new Christians essentially would say, well, tell us about him. Tell us what he did. Tell us what he said. And, and, and all that stuff is actually recorded here. And so the first Christians arranged their everyday life, but first giving attention, time, and energy to learning from the apostles about the Christ. Secondly, the Bible says here, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. Do you know what that word means, anybody? Do you ever use that word outside of, like, church circles? No? Have you ever received a text from somebody saying, hey, what are you doing tonight? Let's fellowship. Have you ever seen a Facebook post that says, go and fellowshipping with my friends tonight? Does anybody know what fellowshipping is? It's because we don't use the word fellow. Uh, some people say, hey, fellas. But normally we don't use the word fellow, fellow. Fellowshipping is a term giving to this coming together of people into a, into a shared life together. Now, in most Christian circles, when we say fellowship, people think food. Right? Oh, is there, I've, I've, had, I've been asked this question. They say, oh, so there's a meeting next week? Yes, yes. Is there going to be some fellowship there? And I'm like, um, yeah, of course. Oh, cool. So what are we going to fellowship on? And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> what do you mean by fellowship? But in some churches, when the word fellowship was thrown out, it meant that we were going to be eating together, right? That, that, that there would be... Haystacks, that's right, there'll be haystacks, and then we'll be fellowshipping, that, that, that we're going to, but, but fellowshipping is, is, a, is a concept more than just about food. We'll get to food in just a moment. The first Christians fellowship, that means they rub shoulders with each other. They spent some time together, and they got to know one another. To know your fellow man is to be in fellowship with him or her. It's not being in the same place together. That's just a gathering. But the Bible says here that they devoted themselves to fellowship. So a Christian, at least in this expression, was identified by gathering and rubbing shoulders and spending part of their life with other Christians. You see that? Okay, we'll, get to, we'll explain that in just a moment. Next. The breaking of bread. This is an expression there, the breaking of bread. Now, uh, we also don't use that expression, so let me break it down, because uh, I don't get that either. No one says, hey, let's go break bread together, because we wouldn't know what that means. Uh, but the breaking of bread is actually what you would do if you gathered around the table, and uh, in, in their culture, you would gather around the table, you would say grace or say thank you to God, and then you would officially break the bread and pass it around. You, know, you, you, you take the meal that was prepared, and then you split it up so we can all share. So the breaking of bread is the sharing of a meal together. 
It's akin to us coming together and, and sharing our meal or inviting others to share in our, in, our, in, our, in our meal. Now, that probably does happen to you, maybe not as frequently as it used to. I don't know how often you get invited to have dinner at other people's houses. What I know about today's culture is that um, we are less uh, excited, or I should say more hesitant about having people over to our house. When was the last time you invited someone that was not family over to your house for lunch or, or dinner for that matter. Uh, it, it's not part of our culture as much anymore. It used to be, right, when, when, we, uh, uh, when, this, when Americans, you know, in the, the 50s, the idea was that the neighbors would come over and they'd bring their deviled eggs or whatever, I don't know, whatever it is that Americans do, and then you'd have this communal life together where people would know their neighbors. But do you know your neighbors very well? Maybe you do. Maybe you're one of those persons like, hey, neighbor, can I get a cup of sugar? Most of us, though, here in Southern California, live very isolated lives. This is how it happened. Some time ago, uh, the American builder uh, and the American arts architects decided to create houses with built-in car garages. That wasn't always the case. Do you know that? In fact, if you go to Eastlake today, there are certain um, tracks, housing tracks, where they put the uh, garage in the back, not in the front. And then when you drive through the front, you will see essentially a house next to a house with porches. I don't know, maybe some of you guys live in those. And, and the garages are kind of hidden in the back. But in the early 50s and 60s, as the housing development began to grow and the urbanization or, or the suburbanization of America happened, essentially we put garages in the front. And became not just uh, a matter of convenience, it was somewhat of a status symbol, going from a one-car garage to a two-car garage, and the great, fantastic American dream of a three-car garage. Now, if you have a four-car garage, that's just too much. But a three-car garage is what everyone wants. It's certainly what I wanted when I moved to San Diego. I was like, I want a three-car garage. Why? Because three-car garages, your wife has a car, you have a car, and you need an extra garage for all your stuff, right? You know, the lawnmower that you never use. You know, those kinds of things. You know, all the junk that you don't want to throw away, but you're just hanging on. You need a three-car garage. That's the American dream. But when it was built, when it was created, here's what happened. We began to drive our cars directly into our garage and from our garage into our kitchen. And so we never saw our neighbors anymore. Do you know what that? Back in the early 50s, you would have to run into each other coming forth, back from forth to work. From your car, you get out to get your mail. Hey, what, oh, what's going on? There would be a lot more of this uh, uh, communal living. But with a, with a built-in car garage, if you're a shy kind of person, it's fantastic. You never have to make eye contact with anyone in your neighborhood. Do you know that? And if you do, it's the safe kind. The kind where your windows are completely rolled up and all you go, eh, and you just keep driving. Ah, you come in here, you, and, 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 and you go in and an automatic garage door, closed, and now you're in the cocoon of your own home. Uh, so we live in very isolated lives. That's the kind of culture that we live in. 
But the idea of the first Christians was actually to go beyond that and not to live an isolated life, but one that was in community. There was fellowship. There was a rubbing of shoulders and the breaking of bread. There would be a shared life experience centered around the sharing of meals together. So the very first Christians in their everyday meant that they were after, they were pursuing or setting their interests in sharing their meals with other people. Rubbing shoulders. And the Bible says here that they devoted themselves, number four, also to prayer. Prayer. So if you were around in this day and you wanted to find out where the Christians were and what they were up to, this is what you'd have to look for. You would have to look for people who were studying together the apostles' teaching, people that would gather together and hang out and discuss and break bread, and that they would spend time in prayer. In prayer. And the Bible says that they did this every day. The Bible says, verse 46, that every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They both broke bread in their homes and ate together with gladness and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of people and of God. Here's the difference between the first Christians and modern day Christians. <clears throat> if you're a brand new to Christianity, uh, maybe you can back me up on this. Most Christians, when they leave the confines of a church, have no way of differentiating their life from everybody else. We live in a world of anonymity. And I know because I've heard the stories, there's probably sometimes in your life when you've been at work and then suddenly by some stroke of you know, chance, you find out that the person in the cubicle next to you that you've been working with for the last 15 years, they're also a Christian and you had no idea. Has that ever happened to you? Have you heard that story before? It happens. We live isolated lives and sometimes people are Christians and nobody else knows about it. Uh, I know because I've heard the stories even around here. Uh, <clears throat> you might have, you know, uh, worked with somebody, encountered somebody, but just didn't know. It's because we have taken our Christianity and compartmentalized it, not, from, not, not into every day of our weeks, but into just one. Into just one. The modern day Christian here in Southern, Southern California, is not an everyday Christian. It's a one-a-day Christian. Generally speaking, if you're a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, it means you're Christian on the seventh day. And if you're a non-denominational Christian, you're Christian mostly on Sunday. And your Christianity gets lived out in the capsule of that day. It might mean that you go to church on that day, put on the fancy outfit, bring the book, pretend to, you know, have some interest in it, listen to the guy up front ramble on and on, and then you go home and conduct your business and go about your daily life. But the Bible suggests that the very first followers of Christ were more than just playing the role. They were actually devoted to following the Christ. They were interested in doing this on an everyday basis. And what they did there holds some secrets for us. Number one, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. An everyday Christian uh, needs instructions on how to be a Christian on an everyday basis. It doesn't matter whether you're a fisherman, chef, Olympic sprinter, or whatever it is. The, the teaching principles of Jesus Christ can and have the potential to affect your everyday, no matter where you spend your time in. Because, because what Christ was teaching was not a profession, it was a way of life. 
a philosophy, a mentality, a way to interpret the world, not a profession. Uh, uh, the Bible says here that they devoted themselves to, to apostles' teaching, to the fellowship. I want you to know that coming to church is important. Sitting here together, we discuss the Word of God. But this is not fellowshipping. Let me repeat that. Coming to church and sitting is not fellowshipping. Chances are, a lot of you guys have been sitting in some of these pews for a long time, but don't really know anything about the people just across the row. Chances are you've seen them many, many times, but you have no idea who they are, what they do, and what challenges there are in their lives. Therefore, just sitting in church does not qualify for fellowshipping. You get that? An everyday Christian is interested in breaking down that wall of anonymity. An everyday Christian is interested in who else is in the journey with us. So when we talk about uh, Wednesday night women's group, when we talk about men's group, when we talk about opportunities outside of church of this particular gathering, that's what we're trying to encourage. We're actually encouraging you to take the opportunity to rub shoulders and get to know others. There's a reason for that. You see, being an everyday Christian was never meant to be a solo sport. It was never meant to be something that you, that you try to do on your own. God designed us to exist in community. He designed us to exist in a way that we would help one another. Now, you know this almost by nature because even though you might be a shy person, we are all looking for community. You're all looking for somebody to listen to you. Somebody that you can be yourself around. Somebody to spend some time with. Very few of us are absolute loners. Most of us want to spend time and life with others. And the Bible says that we were designed that way. Especially those of us that want to follow the Christ. We were never designed to follow the Christ on our own. We were designed to follow the Christ together. Fellowshipping is coming together with others and saying What's going on in your life? What challenges? What success? What's working for you? Let's encourage one another. The Bible says that when this group came together, they broke bread together because breaking bread is a symbol of spending life together. Now, I don't mean that, uh, you know, you're going to invite everyone to every meal. But an everyday Christian is looking for opportunities to share their daily life with somebody else. So what would that mean for us if we were trying to be everyday Christians? Well, guess what? It might mean that that we take a chance and invite somebody over to our house for lunch. Now, I know why we don't like to. I'm in the same boat with you. Oh, my house isn't clean. My house is not ready. It's not fancy. It's not this. Who cares? We all need people to be around. We all need others to, 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 to encourage us, and they need us to encourage them. Sharing our home, consider this. If you've spent time in someone else's home, it's a very different relationship that you'll have with that person than if you never grace their door. It's a different relationship. And the Bible says here that they broke bread together because Christians understood that there's a power when we get to know each other. Because when we get to know each other, we can do the next thing, which is pray. Pray. Too often in our experiences as Christians, we have been taught to use prayer as an individual act. Go and pray. And yes, while that's important, 
There's a different power that God unleashes upon his people when we pray in community. When you have a prayer partner, somebody that can pray for you or somebody that you can pray for. We have been sort of trained, those of us that are Christians, to sort of live our spirituality and Christianity on our own. Study on our own, you know, wrestle with God on our own, and pray in solitude. And while that is important and part of our lives, what I want you to get from this example is that God designed us specifically to grow in our everyday Christianity by partnering up, especially in the world of prayer. See, prayer is communicating with God. It's, it, it's a way of talking to him and, and hearing from him specific instructions. And though Jesus is not physically here, he is actually here and available to tell us and to listen to us. And when we come together in prayer, God unlocks certain things that are normally close to us. That's what just happened in chapter 2. Did you catch that? They were meeting together and they began to pray and the Holy Spirit came upon them. It wasn't like Peter or James said, later to you guys, I'm going to go cast the Holy Spirit up on the mountain. That's not how it happened. The Holy Spirit tends to show up in miraculous and powerful ways when we come together. So an everyday Christian is looking for opportunities in their everyday life to engage in fellowship, the sharing of life, and prayer and study. You see that? So consider, ask yourself, is that what's going on in my life? Are those some of the things that I'm chasing after in my life once I leave this building? What's happening on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday? What's happening when I leave and take off the suit and what am I chasing after? Chances are you might be swept up like most of us are in the culture of this world, the rat race. Get up, go to work, make money, come home, watch TV to you know, forget about your troubles, go to bed. Get up, next day, same thing. And just get through and get through. But do you know that we were made for more than just survive? We were made for more than just eke out an existence of generating money so that our kids can spend it. God designed us with, with much bigger purposes in mind. And, and very often you cannot discover that purpose on your own. So the word Christian and an everyday Christian is actually a communal word. It's a definition for us to exist in community. All the things and the qualities of the character of Jesus Christ are experienced in the learning of doing them when there are others around. Consider this. The Bible says that everything that God taught through the person of Jesus Christ can be summed up in two statements. Do you know what they are? The, the two greatest commandments. Anybody know? Thank you. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, Spare body strength with everything that you are. That's number one. Yes, we're going to talk about that next week. How do you have a relationship with God? But the second one is love your, yeah. Did you catch that? It's an extension from you outward to someone else. So to be a Christian, you have to love your God. Yes, we kind of figured that one out. We've learned if you're a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, you got to, you know, behave a certain way, pretend to act a certain way, abstain from certain foods, and, you know, don't say certain things. It's a very individualistic spirituality. It's a very individualistic Christianity. But the second part says love your neighbor as yourself. It has to include somebody else. You cannot live Christianity in a box, isolated. You cannot live Christianity in a vacuum. An everyday Christian means you have to experience whatever God is teaching you and training you in relationship with somebody else. So the first Christians did that. Fellowship, breaking of bread, 
and prayer, and even the teaching, all of these things were not individual enterprises. They were communal. So what does that mean for you and me? It means that an everyday Christian, like you, like me, has to look for and be open to opportunities to engage in the study of, engage in the practice of, engage in the prayer of God's teaching with other people. We need each other. We need each other. Unfortunately for most of us, myself included, our Christianity is a very individual sport. We come to church, we sit down, and we listen, and then we go and try to live life, try to figure it all out and kind of on our own. That's not really how God designed us to be and to exist. My vision for this church, and I think what we're praying and hoping for, is that we would be more of a community rather than just a group of people that sit together once a week. That we would find ways. And listen, I know this is tough. It means we have to go outside of our normal routines. I, I know it's not what we normally do, but Christianity is not what the world would just normally do. Christianity is following the Christ, and he is counterculture. He is going in an opposite direction of where the world is leading you. He is going against your very nature. God says, you want to live isolated. You don't want nobody to tell you what to do. You want to mind your own business. But I want you to live in community. I want you to help others and be allow, allow yourself to be helped by others. What this means for you and me, I want you to pray with me and wrestle with how we can open up the door of our lives to let others in. And when others open their doors to us, to walk in. God designed us to be in community, to learn together. Learn together. You know what happens when people try to learn about Christianity on their own? Just on their own individually? You know what happens? <laughs> Crazy things like the Davidian branch and stuff like that. When you try to learn the Bible all on your own by yourself, you're going to come up with some harebrained ideas. That's what happens. We were not designed that way. We were designed to seek God, but then reason with each other and learn with each other. God says when two or three are gathered, he is there. Let us seek God together. Let us reason with one another. If you're just trying to do this on your own, here's what ends up happening. You end up with statements like, well, what I think is this, this, and that. And, and you know what follows after that. I've heard all kinds of things. Well, I think that because you're trying to find out God and figure him out all on your own. That's not the way we're meant to be. When you try to do Christianity all on your own, you cannot live out the second greatest commandment. <laughs> Love your neighbor as yourself. My vision for this church is we would become a people that live life together. And what that might mean, I'm not quite sure. But I think it has to mean something more than what we're doing now. It has to involve more days than just today. It has to involve some kind of risk on our behalfs. I'm afraid too. You're scared of me, I'm scared of you. I'm afraid that others would see who I really am every day. But you know what? That's exactly what's necessary to be an everyday Christian. I got to let you in. And you got to let me in. We've got to be able to pray for each other. The Bible says we have to even confess our sins to each other. Can you imagine that? 
to tell each other our failings so we can encourage one another. Now, I know there's a lot of groundbreaking that we've got to do to get there, but I believe that when we do that, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit shows up and He begins to do amazing things. God has an amazing plan for us as a church, but we've got to learn and, be, and, and, and seek out these things, be devoted to these things, teaching, prayer, fellowship, the breaking of bread together. That's my challenge to myself and to you. And, 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 and I'm going to say an invitation. So consider, even just this week, look, there might be an opportunity that comes to your door for you to do and share life with somebody. Don't be afraid. Take a chance. Share a meal with somebody. Come to a, come to a Bible study. Come to a group where we talk and listen and encourage one another. Be a part of our Saturday morning discussion groups. There's a lot of opportunities. And if there isn't one that fits your, let's make one. Let's create one. Call me up. Send me an email. Post me on Facebook. Say, Pastor, I want to do this on Tuesday night. I'm with you. Let's do this. Let's not live our Christianity in a vacuum. Once a day, a couple hours on a Saturday morning. Let's attempt to be everyday Christians.